They say the first cut is the deepest, but it's often the bill for the Band-Aid that leaves the worst bruise. As a result, people have been exploring alternative ways to heal more and more. And by 2018, the global wellness industry had ballooned into a $4.2 trillion market, charging prime rates for everything from organic eats to yoga retreats, supplements, serums, specialists, therapists, and devices to measure how well it's all going. And when medical insurers won't cover these expenses and peace and quiet become luxury items, what happens to the people who can't afford the price tag? This month, we're looking for ways to get better without breaking the bank. First, we go offline and back into the world. Then, we find ourselves where art and psychology meet. Next, we get stuck and unstuck in the past. And finally, we navigate loss, finding help, and what it means to come home. Life never tells us to wish you well, but you'll find your point when you exhale in Brooklyn, USA. Social media is well on its way to becoming one of the most destructive inventions of modern civilization. Nearly half the world's population spends an average of two hours a day scrolling, clicking, swiping, and liking, while the more nefarious amongst us use these platforms to bully, misinform, disarray, exploit, and abuse each other. And while Facebook's director of research even once suggested that the answer to the mental health issues caused by the platform was to simply become a more active user, producer Kyrell Palmer investigated a different approach. Towards the end of last year, he went on a social media cleanse, extricating himself from all the platforms he frequents to find out what it means and how it feels to disengage. Here's Kyrell. Welcome, you've got mail. Living in this world that we live in now, everything is always so fast-paced, and I've realized that sometimes you gotta stop for yourself just so you could check out the perspective of everything around you. Fall time was the best time for me to do so. I felt myself becoming overwhelmed. I don't know which direction I would like to move forward in, and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to figure out what do I wanna do? Take this time for myself. As far as like art, I'm not as inspired anymore from me trying to force myself to do this without any type of drive. I call myself always having that itch just for a notification to see if I got any likes or to see if somebody commented or something. And it got to a point where it started demanding more attention than it should have. for me to move forward with this cleanse. I contacted my sister. I gave her all of my social media, username and passwords. And I was like, yo, change it for me. As soon as we get off the phone, she did it. The gatekeeper was already there locking everything down. <laughs> I didn't expect for her to do it so quickly. You know, the first week was kind of hard and I felt like I was a drug addict. I kept finding myself searching for that source, but I knew that I technically checked myself into rehab. It, it was there still, but it was more like I'm more aware of it. Even though I'm disconnected from the world, I'm focusing more on myself. Everybody around me is still deeply connected into social media. I'm just there coming numb to the addiction of social media. So this is just a recap of month one. And so far, I think I'm going to try to do this for the, to the end of the year. 
we want to see what's going to happen to them. Goodbye. While the concept of art therapy may sound new and new age, the idea goes back as far as the 1940s. It was developed and honed at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, where Margaret Naumburg promoted the release of spontaneous imagery through drawing, painting, scribbling, and interpreting the symbols that were left on the canvas. Today, the American Art Therapy Association has thousands of members, and the field of creative arts therapy has broadened to include the use of everything from dance to theater to music to heal. In both her artistic and therapeutic practices, Brooklyn-based artist Amelia Moore uses color, contrast, and visual contradiction to make light of the darkness that comes from being constantly bombarded with bad news. Filmmaker Yasha Kalbach sat down with Amelia to talk about her early experiences with art, how they've informed her current work, and the power of art therapy. Here's Amelia. I like mixing pop figures with inanimate objects because I think it's just funny and doesn't make sense really and that's the whole point. I think the first one was Mao with like eggs behind him and it didn't fit together at all because he's this terrible dictator figure and then eggs are kind of cheerful. Then I think it grew into like drawing Trump and making him look how he looks was pretty satisfying. We are constantly bombarded with news that is upsetting and being able to just take this news and these people who can be alarming and make them feel lighter and have funny backgrounds feels good to me. I'm Amelia Moore. I'm an artist based in Brooklyn, New York. One of my earliest memories doing art was with my dad. We would go draw this sculpture of a giant naked man that was at the Hirshhorn Museum in DC. It became almost like a game to go check on him. And sometimes over the years, they would move him around the museum to different spots so we would have to find him. It is kind of cool to think about how many times and at different stages in my life, my dad and I visited this one sculpture. His approach of not taking it too seriously and just having fun definitely influences how I approach interacting with clients and patients. I'm in my second year at Pratt studying art therapy. Art therapy is basically a combination of traditional psychotherapy methods with art making and that can look a lot of different ways. I first became interested and kind of aware of what art therapy was when I was working at a refugee shelter in Buffalo, New York. I went up there for two summers to work with the kids at the shelter. While I was there, I noticed that some activities felt really good and made the kids calm and happy and other activities were terrible. That's when I started researching and learning that art therapy was a thing and I could actually go in to work like this with more intention and understanding of psychology and like what works well for what type of person. One moment where the power of art therapy really clicked for me was when I was painting a wall with this 11-year-old boy from Nigeria. And we were painting over this mural because the shelter is in an old church, so it was one of those really scary religious scenes with blood and gore. And so we were just for a few hours standing there 
painting repetitive black strokes. And it was nice because it was such a big portion of wall that you weren't really worried about messing up or making a mess. You were just trying to cover something up. And there was something like really calming and kind of meditative about it. And he started opening up about his experiences at the shelter, which hadn't happened until that moment. Some parallels I see between my own personal art making and art therapy, I think are bringing in humor and like not taking things too seriously. A powerful aspect of art therapy is simply letting go and having fun and even in really intense placements. So I'm at an inpatient psych hospital right now and there are moments in the art room that are so funny and filled with joy and it's really not a joyful place, obviously. And I think the more that I bring in my lightness and humor and joy into this place, sitting with someone and drawing, the more it helps them to access light and joy in themselves. They say it takes seven months for you to break out of a bad habit. Spent two months on no social media. And I'm okay. I'm here. I'm not gonna lie, it's getting harder now. Only because now it is the holiday season. You kind of fill the void. You just place yourself into this weird little gray bubble where you just sit and self-reflect. It's cool though. I don't like to step up to the plate until it's like the very last second. I like to see what everybody else is going to do first before I put out my energy and effort. I'm not trying to run away from these things. I'm, I'm legit in my room, but instead of me just stepping up, I sit back and let it rock. That's the distractions. I already know what I got to do to fix it. Since no more distractions are into place, it gives me time to really see a lot of things for what they really are. As far as like personal drive and expectations, I still feel like I'm in touch and in tune with things, but it just now is not a factor anymore for me. I realized it's a lot of stuff I gotta work on to make me happy. I can admit I'm not very good at holding conversations. When I talk, I kind of like lead people up to this great high climax and then they're waiting for me to finish it off. And it's just like the fact that I'm able to notice these things, it gives me the opportunity to improve on these things. The second month, it's forced me to talk to people more. I've seen friends say they was gonna go on a quote-unquote social media break or cleanse or whatever. They do it for like a week or two and then that's that, like, then they pop back up like nothing ever happened. I need more than just two weeks for my body really to take things into effect. So I have to hold myself accountable of uh, keeping in touch with people. I gotta meet them halfway since I don't have access to, to what they're displaying right now. That, you know, I've already completed two months of no social media and I'm approaching, and I'm already, you know, beginning the third. I'm gonna push through though, I'm gonna push through. The community acupuncture model is designed to provide accessible, sustainable acupuncture to low and middle income communities by charging people on a sliding scale and treating multiple patients at the same time. 
Today, acupuncture is a widely embraced, though largely inaccessible, medical treatment in the United States. But its history in this country is tangled up in ideas about social medicine and radical political movements. Producer Emily Bogosian took a trip through the history of community acupuncture to find out where it's going next. I mean, I, I have to admit to you guys, I, I'm a little nervous. You know, it's my first time getting acupuncture. Well, I assure you, Ronald, you're in very good hands. Yes, very good hands. Very good. My assistant, Daphne, will be leading the treatment. And you might feel a slight tingling at first, oh, okay? Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. The most important barrier to acupuncture helping more people in America is the fear of needles. Acupuncture, once considered fringe in the U.S., has gained acceptance in the West. You know, the people who don't come for acupuncture are the people who say, oh, no, 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 I'm, so, I'm too scared of needles, no, no, no. And it's really not fair to call them needles because they're more like pins. They're like the size of a hair. In any given session, you might have 10 to 20, maybe even 30 needles in you, depending on where you are and who's doing the treatment. And you might feel one of those. Today, it is packaged and sold by Western medicine and the modern wellness movement as a complementary and alternative form of healthcare. People seek out acupuncture to treat everything from anxiety, depression, and PTSD to fertility, back pain, and allergies. You know, I, I feel a, a release already. I'm almost lightheaded. Good. <laughs> but that's, that's the natural high of acupuncture. Very natural, very normal. Despite a steep rise in popularity, insurance coverage is limited, and most patients pay out of pocket. My name is Melissa Lehmeyer, and I am uh, owner and acupunk at Bridge community acupuncture, which is actually in Florida, and a POCA member. And POCA is People's Organization of Community Acupuncture. So community acupuncture says, you know, this model of charging exuberant amounts of money that most people can't afford, especially when insurance doesn't cover it, it really fails to address the needs of patients and, of course, of the acupuncturists who really just want to make a living and, and make a difference. One of the barriers often is like, not only do people often not know what acupuncture is, it's like the cost of it is prohibitive. My name is Mia Herndon. Uh, my pronouns are she and they. Yeah, I'm a licensed acupuncturist based in Crown Heights, New York. Community acupuncture has been important to me because it creates an accessible way in, meaning, you know, it's affordable. Our intention is to provide accessible health care to the neighborhood, and we're committed to making health and happiness radically accessible. We don't accept that the current system for care is just for the few, and so we're striving for care for all. So, yeah, I guess it's been over 20 years now since I've been utilizing acupuncture as a main form of my health care. To be a POCA clinic, you have to have a clearly advertised sliding scale fee structure that does not exceed $50 per treatment. There's no income verification or discussion. The fee paid is left up to the patient. In community acupuncture, for the most part, what we're doing is called distal acupuncture, meaning that the needles are further away from the problem. Um, so if you have an internal abdominal problem, we're not necessarily going to put any needles in your abdomen. We're going to put them in your feet and your legs and your hands and your arms. No need to unclothe, no need to treat the affected area necessarily. If you're able to relax while you're having acupuncture, your brain waves calm down. So your fight or flight stress level 
um, has calmed down and your peace and calm level has come up. And a lot of people call it a buzz. Some people call it an acu-buzz. I think as a person having grown up in the South, I understood that Black people in particular, we were were always responsible for our own care. And I see that as a part of many Indigenous communities I've been able to be a part of and break bread with. But there's always some ways that we've been able to take care of ourselves or try to take care of ourselves in the midst of not having access to other kinds of infrastructure. For me, part of my drive or movement towards community acupuncture was really rooted inside of a project of uh, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers to provide community health care through community acupuncture. That project and that work for me became an important model. If we help support the healing of people, then we can also support the resilience of our people and organize in a different way. So my name is Jacqueline Hout, actually Jackie, and I uh, have been doing acupuncture for over 40 years. I learned it from uh, Black and Latino revolutionaries back in the late 76. We're not a self-defense group in the limited fashion that uh, you usually think of self-defense groups. Uh, The Black Panther Party is simply the vanguard of the revolution, and we uh, plan to teach the people uh, the strategy and the necessary tools to uh, liberate themselves. You know, I was was waking up politically. You have to understand, my generation, we were going to go fight the communists in, in Cuba over the missile crisis. And all of a sudden, it was like Martin Luther King and, 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 you know, Malcolm. When I saw that, I knew that was a truth that I had seen my whole life, even growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania without any people of color. In 1977, Jackie was working for an on-site blood pressure clinic when she met Matulu Shakur, an acupuncturist, healthcare worker, and the founder of one of the first acupuncture schools in the country. He's also Tupac's stepfather. I met Matulu Shakur actually, and this collective, there were three of them, and they were very interested in acupuncture. And they were about to start a school in acupuncture in Harlem in the South Bronx. So I met Matulu on a street corner. You have to remember, this was a revolutionary time. And, you know, he was suspicious of who this person was. And so he came over and he talked to me a little bit. And then he finally said, so do you have any questions? And I said to him, so what do you do? And he said, oh, we do acupuncture. And I looked at him and I said, acupuncture? I always wanted to do that. What is it? (laughs) And that was it. Soon, Jackie was learning about social medicine, liberation acupuncture, and the fight to bring low-cost acupuncture clinics to the South Bronx. Back in uh, 1970, you know, the Bronx and, you know, poor communities, it's still true, had terrible, terrible health care. And they wanted more community control over that. In a Pacifica radio documentary from 1971, Lincoln doctors, activists, and community members shared their thoughts on the management of Lincoln Hospital and the decline of healthcare in their community. Lincoln Hospital uh, does not have the facilities, the resources needed for the adequate care of the population it serves. They should bring more, you know, doctors and specialized person, you know, so they could take care of the children, you know, real fast. It's, it's like, you know, somebody like these little children, you know, they're real sick, you know, and they could die right there, you know, just waiting for the doctor. The Lincoln District has practically no private physicians anymore. 
They don't have the doctors down there. They have the lousiest hospital physically in the whole city down there. Poverty areas like the areas in Southeast Bronx in Harlem and in Bedford-Stuyvesant, they have been left behind. Our people are killed in the streets all the time. Sister by the name of Carmen Rodriguez, Lincoln Hospital by an abortion. We say that it's all the same thing, that it's genocide against third world people, black and Puerto Rican people, and that's why we're charging the city with murder. Last July 14th, the Young Lords Party, the Think Lincoln Committee, and the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement began an occupation of part of the Lincoln Hospital complex. The Young Lords and Black Panther took over the hospital to demand better health care. So they had a standoff. They had a list of seven demands. The establishment of a permanent complaint table and a permanent daycare center, immediate construction of the new Lincoln Hospital, a program of door-to-door -door preventive medicine, a drug detoxification program, a minimum wage for workers of $140 per week, and finally the establishment of a community worker board with real power in the administration of the hospital. They took over the nurses' wing of the hospital, and they quickly implemented Lincoln Detox program because one of the major issues in the community was heroin addiction. The detox program, it, from, from an acupuncturist viewpoint and from a community acupuncturist viewpoint, that was really a founding moment of community acupuncture in America. And, and actually, it was, it was really a founding moment of acupuncture in America. Acupuncture acupuncture to help addicts get off crack and while they get high on images of waterfalls and leaves and shade and mist they're sitting in a clinic in one of the toughest neighborhoods in all of america the south bronx they had one doctor who was doing it and they saw what great work it was doing and patients were waiting and waiting and waiting for the doctor to get to them well they quickly realized that there was no reason why they couldn't put the needles in so they went down to chinatown they got some needles, and they all just started putting needles in. And Matula Shakur was one of those people. You I mean, what's incredible about this is there was an acupuncture in most places, and Lincoln and the South Bronx and Harlem had acupuncture, had acupuncture clinics and access to it. One of the first things was that were being fought for was self-determination and community control. New York State had a lot of... Black and Latino uh, community people get licensed as acupuncturists and proceed to work in their communities for a long time. It was real clear that there was so much more potential to acupuncture and they decided to really learn it more deeply and they wanted to start a school. The Lincoln Detox Center, also known as the People's Drug Program, was the first drug rehabilitation treatment center to incorporate acupuncture in the U.S. One of the most moving experiences I ever had as a student was there was a guy who had been shot by the police and he was, uh, he, he was paralyzed from his top down. And his friends carried him in for acupuncture. In the 80s and 90s, the clinic became an important site of healing for people in recovery from crack addiction and people living with HIV AIDS. You know, you could see it in an AIDS. There were a whole lot of acupuncture, did a lot of work during the AIDS epidemic. And there, you know, was happening in those communities because a lot of people had gotten it through needles. You know, I, I know that we prolong life. Dr. Michael Smith says acupuncture combined with counseling actually works. Do you think this is going to get bigger? We have, uh, every day we have new clinics coming in, new cities asking us how can we set up a program. But Tula used to say, look, he said, 
got to understand this this is going to become very popular and it's going to therefore be licensed and when it's licensed you may think it's a great thing because it's going to open said, but what it's really about is control and they're going to control it to make it serve their interest and not serve the people not serve the you know advancement of the of the science of acupuncture in its totality he said they're going to actually use it to make sure that it's limited in what it can achieve and how it comes into the world. Today, acupuncture in the U.S. can cost up to $300, and acupuncture school can put people hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Groups like POCA are trying to protect low-cost acupuncture. Part of POCA and part of community acupuncturist philosophies is this idea that we have to westernize acupuncture and make it more like doctors um, and formal offices and get the insurance to pay for it. Um, we, we are really against that idea. It goes really against what we think the principles of acupuncture are, which is about treating the most amount of people. Usually, you know, a person is receiving treatment alongside others. In our society, we assign a monetary value to actual other forms of value. And so to imagine that you can get health care for $25, $35, $40, you know, for some people, it makes it feel like it lessens the quality and the expectation that people have of what's possible with this medicine. The stronger the community network of care, the family network of care, et cetera, like the kind of healthier, more able to lead lives where we experience different forms of freedom and liberation. Eventually, the program at Lincoln shut down. In 1974, Dr. Richard Taft was found dead in a closet in the clinic under suspicious circumstances and amidst violent threats to the program. In 1978, Mayor Ed Koch dispatched riot-equipped police to evict the People's Program from Lincoln Hospital. In 1986, Matula Shakur was arrested um, for his activism. And he has been in jail for the last 30 years, and he is 70 years old now. He was denied parole in 2016 and in 2018. In 2019, he received a diagnosis of life-threatening bone marrow cancer. You know, I don't think people quite understand how close we were to revolutionary change in this country in the 70s. Because white workers and white, you know, poor people were starting to understand and work with black people, you know, around understanding their oppression and fighting back. You really get to know people. You learn about people. You learn about how they're, you know, crazy and wonderful and blocked and oppressed. And, and acupuncture actually can help resolve a lot of those blockages. When you actually study it and the way it comes from Taoism and the way it's about balancing nature, you know, there are solutions. I do feel there's more hope than I have for a long, long time because Younger people and stuff are starting to wake up and they're starting to organize. That's hopeful. My experience has been there's a tremendous force of healing in this planet, in everybody, and acupuncture works with that energy. We live within this day and age where shit is constantly moving and we adapt to that. With the evolution of technology, we just go with the flow. We as human beings never really had a chance to stop and reflect. It's been four months 
in a week or two or something since I haven't been on social media. Still going on strong. This time away from social media has helped me find my own flow. If you don't have anybody else to sit there and compare your experience to, then it's like you're forced to create your own experience. I'm reading books more, I've been drawing more, spending more time with family, I've been going to the gym. Like, you realize how much time you really wasted on these machines. People love to just watch other people experience the life that they want to experience. The things that I'm doing now, the things that I've always said that I've wanted to go back into doing. Updating my website, resume, cover letter, demo reels coming next all within damn near a week. While looking at other people, I'm finding things along the way that are motivating me to invest my time. It gave me the space to really figure out what I wanted for myself. In Brooklyn, the majority of patients hospitalized for mental health care are black men, and predominantly black communities like Crown Heights have the city's third largest rates of hospitalization. And while navigating the American healthcare system can be nightmarish for anyone who has the misfortune, getting help is harder when you're facing the systematic biases built into its framework. Filmmaker Martin Granby sat down with Andre Walker to learn from his experiences negotiating New York's behavioral health and rehabilitation centers and to hear how the process of finding help can affect how you feel. Here's Andre. My experience as a black man changes from day to day. In a job interview or what people I walk past on the train. I have a description for a male black with a brown jacket, blue jeans. A farm is light years away from the streets, the houses, and the narrow limits of the world he knows. Tommy can't talk about a farm, and so he is labeled. Tommy is inarticulate and incapable of expressing even the simplest idea. How people treat you and your family, how people treat you when you want to get help. My experiences as a black man really have been outside of myself. The world has a lot of identities for me as a black man. I don't feel traumatized. I don't know what trauma feels like. Or maybe I know what trauma feels like a little too well, so I'm comfortable with it. I don't know.
I started using drugs a year after she passed. And honestly, like right now, I can't remember feeling for such a long time. My mom, she was like the safest place on this planet. She's the first memory I have of like what it means to laugh. The first laugh I ever heard was hers. And so I'm sure my, my laugh has those qualities. I wish I could remember her voice. I learned actually from her to survive love. And what I mean by that is, here's this woman that's taking care of me. And I, she loved me, but when she was not in a healthy place, I felt like I was surviving her love. I found out I was positive in 2011. I, I actually, this is gonna sound crazy to say this out loud, but I actually uh, allowed myself to become positive on purpose because I just didn't care anymore. Maybe I felt alone before she died. So when she died, I definitely felt alone. But he knows that he is safe, and he is warm, and his mother loves him. And that's the best kind of a beginning any baby can have. I lost myself. I lost my sense of balance. I lost my mind, literally. So much so that I ended up in a psychiatric facility for four days. They said that I was having a crystal meth-induced psychosis but I also was diagnosed with PTSD from her passing, which I still, to this day, like, I, I question because I thought I had used perhaps too much drugs. I, it had to be anything but my mother passing away. It had to be anything but my sense of loss. I realized that I was in a suicidal state. True or not, I felt abandoned by God. We hide what we think might be weaknesses or flaws where we may be fractured and to be mentally ill often is understood as a weakness that you're less than a man but most of the great men of color in history have had a little something buzzing in their heads which has often made them great There are those who feel that the world is against them. Somehow we would want them to know that you made them in your image and likeness. I'm just never enough. I'm too much of 
everything. That's a noise that's in my head. Everybody experiences some of the same problems, the same issues. Culturally, they are addressed differently or approached differently. So those of us who work in mental health have to be culturally acute that uh, one size doesn't fit all. Everybody has a different approach, a different need. I've never felt hurt. I just learned to shut down. I learned that my feelings in a situation didn't matter. And in places like hospitals, where you should be hurt if you need help, I didn't feel hurt. I was in trouble and I needed to check myself into a rehab. I went to Mount Sinai West and I went to the Addiction Institute four days in a row. They would not take me. I told them I was suicidal. They told me the insurance said that they couldn't take me because they don't detox crystal meth addicts. And so even though I didn't feel like I was going to hurt myself, I was like, look, if I go back out here and use, I'm not coming back. They're like, I'm sorry, it's the insurance. And then finally, mercifully, I got a bed. People treat addicts and people with mental health issues like they're less than human, a lot. Instead of treating them like they're ill people, like society's throwaway. If you couldn't figure out how to classify somebody, just put them all together and let them fend for themselves. It's like survival of the fittest in those places. I was hoping that they would keep me for like, for a month, they kept me for two weeks. Clear that I was being let go too early. I really wanted to stay. I actually cried when I left. As I was leaving, a male nurse said to me, making bad choices is what landed you here and that's kind of your fault, so make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's how he sent me off. <laughs> Constantly trying to figure out who and what I am and where I belong. And that's just been my life experience, especially as a black gay man. Like, there's nowhere to call home, there's no safe place for too long of a period of time. I do things to take care of myself now. Like, I got on a, a program you know, for people who are HIV positive. But I also work at a yoga studio. I have a sponsor who works with me on my recovery. I see a therapist. I practice yoga. I meditate. I pray. Fucking, I spend money to go to fucking workshops like you would not believe. Like, I, yeah, I'm good at being whole alone.
and I'm officially back into social media. With that being said, it's kind of the same, honestly. I could tell people miss me. It, it was a lot of reflection that was happening as far as like myself and what I wanted and a lot of clarity also started coming into the way because there was less distractions for me. I took less pressure off of myself. Instead of me just trying to fit in with the wave of everything, me cutting off social media, it showed me how lonely you could really be in life. Because even though like I got family and friends around me and whatnot, we don't link up every day or talk every day. So it, it really gives you a lot of free time to let your mind just wander. I decided not to go 100% back to my old ways because I still found a lot of relief in the limitations that I gave myself for social media. I'm ready to just be a leader now. Ready to be confident, ready to step up and go achieve the potential that everybody has seen in me that I did not see in myself. And just from the reactions and the support that I've been getting throughout the four months of a hiatus, that really motivated me and is pushing and elevating me to become more confident and more certain of what I'm doing. Like me taking a break from social media gave me a chance to really sit there and reflect on potential that I have that I never really focused on. Being able to believe in myself is really starting to knock down the doors of doubts within my life. I will definitely get to a point where I feel like nothing can stop me. At the end of the day, I know what I'm capable of. The time away from social media, it really helped me get back to who I was prior to the pressure of always seeming like you're doing something, even though you're really not. I feel like I finally understand what is my business, what is my brand, and now I'm able to actually jump back into it and promote it properly in a way that brings value to myself, but then also to my viewers and supporters. I definitely feel like the break is still needed because this was only temporary, and it was like a breath of fresh air for me to see that it is possible. But now, you know, it's just like the gym, like I gotta keep the routine up so the effects really stick in. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian, Shadeen Bargi, Kyrell Palmer, Sasha Whittle, and Charlie Hoxie. With help this month from Yasha Kalbach and Martine Granby. You can watch each of the short documentary films that their stories were based on in the Brooklyn USA playlist at youtube.com slash bricktv. We're tackling everything from language to cooperative economics this season, and we want to hear from you. If you want in, send tips, pitches, thoughts, ideas, self-destructing messages, or just regular normal emails to radiopitches at brickartsmedia.org. And check the show notes for a link to our pitch page if you want more info. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. Patience and persistence goes very far, you know, yeah, just know that you're not going to be saved by, you know, any Democrat <laughs> or, <laughs> you know.